All right, well, let's pray together this morning. Lord, we come before you this morning knowing that you are Lord over all. We get to sit in awe of who you are, a gracious Father who is actively for us. Even as we turn from you, as we choose other things in our lives over you, you do not leave or forsake us. And that is not a half-hearted or wishy-washy statement, but a fierce promise from you, Lord. We recognize that anything we may face in this life, you are Lord over, and we do not need to fear. You implore us not to fear, but to place our trust in you. Allow us to come before you this morning to do that. Whatever it is that we walked in with that is weighing on us, that might be taking up space in our minds and in our thoughts, we turn it over to you, Father. We lay it at your feet and trust that you will do what you will with it. Allow our hearts to be open to what that is this morning. Father, we want to especially lift up the Deal family as they're walking through the hard and long aftermath of their son Luke's fall as they were hiking this past week. Lord, we want to thank you for the progress he's already made in these past few days of increased cognition and healing, and we ask that that would just continue in mighty ways, God. We ask that you would provide doctors and nurses with skill and wisdom as they treat Luke, and that you would continue to heal him, for you are our great healer, Lord. We ask that you would give strength and encouragement to Connie, Dave, Abby, Hannah, and Sydney, who are with him as he's in the hospital. Lord, he has a long road ahead, and we just pray that you would continue to sustain him. And we know, Lord, as we sang earlier, that you have this whole situation in your hands, that you are a God who is good, even in the midst of the incredibly hard and sad and traumatic things that we might face in this life. We pray that the Deal family would powerfully know that you are the God who is with them, that is comforting them, and that you are still their good and gracious Father. Lord, it's in moments like these where we get to see your spirit at work and your kingdom become a reality on this earth. I pray that as we see our body come together for the Deal family, as thousands are praying for them, I pray that that would be so for each of us as well. And whatever we're facing and whatever we're walking through, Lord, allow us to come and be a part of your people here together, knowing that you work in this place that we don't have to face it alone, not only because you are with us, but because you give us your people to go with us as well. I pray that we would take that with us this morning and throughout our days. Lord, as we continue to worship you, allow our hearts to be open to what it is you're doing, to what it is you have to say for us this morning, that you would be with Bernard as he comes and he shares with us. We ask that your spirit would move through him, Father and that we would just continue to worship you with the joy of being your chosen child. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for these things in your good and holy name. Amen. So hear these words from Philippians as uh, we prepare our hearts to hear from what Bernard has to share with us. So Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. And your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. 
that rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Uh, well, talking of kids, uh, I'm the king of the castle. Um, is a, uh, a playground taunt song that I um, heard a lot as a kid and uh, probably said a few times as well. Uh, so it was a popular playground uh, little ditty, as it were. I'm the king of the castle and you're the dirty rascal. So whoever was to the top of the hill or the top of the climbing frame or something would uh, shout out, I'm the king of the castle, and then... Uh, look uh, gleefully at everybody else and say, and you're the dirty rascals. Um, and then, uh, no matter, it didn't matter how big the mound was you were on, it might only be uh, 12 inches tall, but if you were on top of it, you could then say, I'm the king of the castle, you were at the top. And then there'll be a bit of a tussle because everybody else, all the dirty rascals, would try to depose the king and get to the top themselves. Well, that's, uh, that was a childhood, um, song, a little uh, piece there, but real life isn't really all that very different. Kingship arose in Mesopotamia in the third millennium BC uh, in the city-states, uh, each with a king, and then around 2300 BC, Sargon established what's reckoned as being the first empire, where he ruled over all of Mesopotamia. And being king over a city or ruler over an empire, was a powerful position, but it was always also a precarious position. You could claim, I'm the king of the castle, but there were always other people eager to depose you and claim the crown themselves. Now in Shakespeare's play, Richard II, uh, the king of that name, uh, laments the fact uh, that he has just been deposed by his cousin Bolingbroke, who then becomes Henry IV, and he laments, uh, his fate, and what will be the fate of all kings. And that's what has come to be known as the hollow crown speech. And he says, let us sit upon the ground and tell sad stories of the death of kings, how some have been deposed, some slain in war, some haunted by the ghosts they have deposed, some poisoned by their wives, some sleeping killed, all murdered. For within the hollow crown that rounds the mortal temples, of a king keeps death his court. The hollow crown, all earthly kings must die. And a number of years ago, uh, the BBC used that title, The Hollow Crown, for a series it did on all Shakespeare's history plays. That's all the Richards and the Henrys and all their various parts, eight plays in all under this title, The Hollow Crown. In one way or another, all kings die, no matter how big the mound they stand upon when they say, I'm the king of the castle, all will be deposed by death or by other nefarious means. 
But it can be a hard lesson for a king to learn that he is mortal. It can be a hard lesson to learn that he can be deposed from his castle. A hard lesson to learn of his finitude, that he is finite and not eternal. Whether that castle be a city, an empire, a business, or even a church. It often takes a hard fall, for pride goes before a fall. And as we come today to Daniel chapter 4, mighty Nebuchadnezzar tells of his hard fall that taught him his finitude. And he does so in the form of a letter addressed to the entire world. And again, as uh, the previous two chapters, this one is too long to read in its entirety, so I'm going to read only a select few verses. And I hope that you brought your Bibles with you. So um, please turn with me to Daniel chapter 4. Where we read in verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was king of Babylon from uh, the year 605 to 562 BC. That's 43 years. He was the greatest king of Babylon and the greatest king of his time. He was a warrior king. So during the reign of his father, Nebuchadnezzar, who established the Neo-Babylonian Empire, Nebuchadnezzar was out in the field winning all the great battles, defeating the Assyrians and the Egyptians. When he became king, he became a builder king. He built up Babylon to become a magnificent city, as we will hear later in this chapter. He was king of the castle supreme. He was the head of gold of the enormous statue seen in his dreams in chapter 2. Chapter 3, he had built an enormous gold statue and commanded all nations and peoples and languages to fall down and to worship it, else be thrown into the blazing fiery furnace. And now he writes to all nations and peoples of every language throughout the earth with a quite different message, a message that he had to learn the hard way. It's a message about the Most High God in whose presence he isn't Most High anything. Verse 2, it is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Now, six times in this chapter, Nebuchadnezzar refers to God as the Most High. What he has come to learn about the Most High God is that his kingdom is an eternal kingdom, his dominion endures from generation to generation. And to drive home this point, he will, make, he will reiterate it at the end of his letter in verse 34. His dominion is an eternal dominion, his kingdom endures from generation to generation. Dominion, or sovereignty, you see, is the key theme in this chapter. Dominion and the cognate word ruler occur four times each. Who is the ruler whose dominion is eternal? Nebuchadnezzar must learn that it is not himself on earth, but God in heaven. Now, Israel already knew this. 
In our call to worship, uh, Psalm 145, a psalm of praise, that ended with similar language. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. And Israel clung to this truth during the exile. But Nebuchadnezzar had to learn this truth the hard way. Now, it is the hope of every monarch that his kingdom endure from generation to generation that dynastic succession hold. But this is a vain hope. No earthly kingdom lasts forever. As Shakespeare wrote, within the hollow crown that rounds the temple of a mortal king holds death its court. Death comes to all. So how did Nebuchadnezzar learn that he is not the ultimate sovereign, that he is not the most high? Well, it came about in a dream, which he tells us about in verses 4 through 18. So verse 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So life was good for the king. He had defeated all of his enemies. His reign was secure. He'd been built Babylon into a magnificent city. He was content and flourishing in his palace there in Babylon. But there was a problem, the same problem that he had in chapter 2. Lying in bed at night, his sleep was troubled by a dream. Fantastic images were racing through his mind, and these terrified him. And so he did what he did in chapter 2. He summoned his magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. And this time, unlike in chapter 2, he told them his dream and then asked for an interpretation. But as we might expect by now, the magicians are not able to provide an interpretation for the king. And then at last, Daniel came in. Now the king has confidence in Daniel's ability. In verse 9, he says, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream. Interpret it for me. And three times in this chapter, the king acknowledges that the spirit of the holy gods is in Daniel. Verses 8, 9, and 18. And therefore, Daniel has a unique ability to interpret this dream. So, the king tells Daniel his dream. And there are two components to his dream. There is a mighty tree, and there is a messenger from heaven who has a disturbing message. First, the tree, verses 10 through 12. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and it touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. Next, the second part, a mysterious messenger delivering an ominous message. Verse 13, I looked, and there before me was a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven, and he called in a loud voice, Cut down the tree, trim off its branches, strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit. 
Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but let the stump and its root bound with iron and bronze remain in the ground in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by the messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. Now, Nebuchadnezzar may not yet know the meaning of this dream with its tree and the life among the animals, but the lesson that he is to learn is already clear. So that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. So there's that key word, sovereign, cognate with the earlier word, dominion. And this is a lesson for the living. This is a lesson for all people to learn. And two more times in the chapter, this lesson will be stated specifically for the king until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign. Verses 25 and 32. Which, of course, means that Nebuchadnezzar is not ultimately sovereign, no matter how great he be. There is another throne, a higher throne. Having told his dream, then in verse 18, Nebuchadnezzar again appeals to Daniel, whom he addresses with his Babylonian name, Belteshazzar, appeals to him to interpret the dream. His wise men cannot do so, but as the king says, you can because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then in the next section of the letter, verses 19 through 27, Nebuchadnezzar writes of how Daniel interpreted the dream to him. Daniel was hesitant to speak at first because he understood the dream only too clearly and he was alarmed at its implications for the king. He was perplexed or better really, he was alarmed, he was appalled, appalled at the implications of the dream. But Nebuchadnezzar urged him on to not be afraid of telling the meaning. Daniel wished the dream's meaning were true for the king's enemies instead. So awful were the implications. Daniel repeated the vision that the king had earlier told him. The tree grew strong, it was rooted in the earth, but its top reached to the heavens, and it was visible to the ends of the earth. This is a global tree. This is the cosmic tree, we might say. This is the axis mundi, the axis of the world, the axis between earth and heaven runs through that trunk. And in this tree, all creatures found sustenance and safety. All creatures led a flourishing life. Daniel gives the interpretation of this first part of the dream, saying to the king, you are the tree. Verse 22, your majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. 
Nebuchadnezzar is the world ruler, the great king. One of his titles was king of the universe, though that title had been used already for 1,500 years at this point, since the earliest days of empire. But it came closer to reality for him. His empire encompassed not just all of Mesopotamia, but also the whole Levant, the eastern edge of the Mediterranean Sea. It was a large dominion, larger than any preceding ones. But there's also the second part to the dream, the decree announced by the heavenly messenger, the decree to cut down this mighty tree, leaving just the stump of its roots. And this stump remains in the field among the wild animals. Daniel next gives the interpretation of this second part of the dream. Verse 24, this is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree the most high is issued against my lord, the king. You see, there is a higher authority than Nebuchadnezzar, the great king. The ruler in heaven has issued a decree against the ruler on earth. And now the metaphor changes from a tree to a deranged human. Verse 25, you'll be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You'll eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. So the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar has to learn is clear. Until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign, over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes, and when you acknowledge that heaven rules. The Most High is sovereign. Heaven rules. And there, the word sovereign and rules are actually the same word in the original. It's a bit unfortunate they've been translated differently here. Nebuchadnezzar is not the ultimate ruler. There is a higher throne. Heaven rules, not Babylon. Here, obviously, with heaven being a circumlocution for God, the most high God. Four times, we are told that it will take seven times for Nebuchadnezzar to learn this lesson. Probably seven cycles of the seasons, seven years. This is not an easy lesson to learn, that you are not sovereign, that you are not king of the castle, for Nebuchadnezzar to learn that he is not the ultimate world ruler. And Daniel ends his interpretation of the dream with some advice for the king. Verse 27, therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. So Daniel urges the king to change his behavior from earth's model of a king to heaven's model of a king. And I think attention to the poetic parallelism that's used here helps clarify what he's saying. Daniel urges the king to discontinue his old behavior, his sins and his wickedness, and to replace this with new behavior. 
doing what is right by being kind to the oppressed. You see, the Old Testament vision for a king is that he do justice and righteousness. The Hebrew words mishpat and tzedakah. And we tend to hear doing, practicing righteousness in terms of justification before God. We hear it in legal or forensic terms. But this word pair really applies to the proper functioning of society. That it functions in such a way so that all flourish, including especially the poor, the weak, the vulnerable. Doing righteousness means showing favor to the oppressed so that they are included in the flourishing of society. Now, in building his vast empire, Nebuchadnezzar had run over lots of people. This is what happens in building any human empire. Lots of people, big and small, get run over. They get crushed. But a wise ruler will care for the little people. He will be like that large tree in which all find sustenance and safety so that all flourish. Now, who are the oppressed in Nebuchadnezzar's empire? Well, certainly the Jews. Some of them remained in the land, although the land is part of the Babylonian empire. Many of them are in Babylon, in captivity, in exile. They're trying to flourish in a foreign land. There are traumatized, displaced people. They're among the oppressed. But if Nebuchadnezzar, the great king, will deal compassionately with the last, the least, the lost, then perhaps his prosperity continue. The prosperity he had while sitting contentedly in his beautiful palace in verse 4. How can he sit there at ease and look out upon the suffering of the oppressed people? and not do something. So Daniel is urging a different type of kingship, a kingship more in line with the heavenly model than the earthly model. It's a vision of kingship which Israel's kings were supposed to practice, but rarely did. They tended not to do justice and, mercy and um, righteousness. And their failure to do that is yet another reason why Israel ended up in exile and the land destroyed. Then the final major section is an account of the fulfillment of the dream. Referring to Nebuchadnezzar now in the third person, verse 28, all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. 12 months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Now, the king had indeed built or rebuilt Babylon into a magnificent city. He restored the beautiful Ishtar Gate. There it is on the left. That's been excavated and now it's housed in a museum in Berlin. Uh, it was actually a double gate. This is only the smaller of the gates. Um, very beautiful. He also restored the processional way that led to the gate that was lined on either side by this beautiful tile work of lions, uh, which now are in um, archaeological museums around the world. Uh, the ones I've seen are in Istanbul, the archaeological museum there. Uh, the one I use here for uh, the image for the whole series uh, is, I think, at Yale University. 
these date from the sixth century, so Daniel would have seen these lions and this tile work in that gate. Nebuchadnezzar also restored the temple of Marduk, uh, the god of Babylon. He restored the ziggurat, the mighty tower that stood in the center of the city that linked heaven to earth in their thinking. Nebuchadnezzar the builder made his city great, Babylon the Great. It was a fitting residence for Nebuchadnezzar the Great. It was the center of the world. It was the world city. Is not this the great Babylon that I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? But as soon as he said these words, a voice came from heaven. Your royal authority has been taken from you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. For the third time we hear this lesson. And it was so. Nebuchadnezzar became like an animal. And at the end of the seven periods, Nebuchadnezzar finally looked up to heaven and he was restored. And now here at the end of his letter, he returns to writing in the first person as he did at the beginning. And he praised God in a doxology, also echoing the beginning of the letter. Verse 34, his dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? And then Nebuchadnezzar closes his letter with a happy ending. He was restored. Verse 36, at the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Those who walk in pride he is able to humble. And many take this away as being the primary lesson of this chapter. Pride goes before a fall, is a proverbial saying that's drawn from Proverbs, the book of Proverbs. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Now, this is indeed true, that pride goes before a fall, and pride is one of the great sins. But surely it's not the primary lesson of this Daniel chapter 4. The chapter is about a very specific form of pride. The chapter is a contest between Nebuchadnezzar, king on earth, and the most high God, king in heaven, over who really rules. Is it Nebuchadnezzar rules? Is it heaven rules? Nebuchadnezzar does indeed rule on earth over a vast empire, but dominion belongs to God in heaven. Heaven rules. And this is the sort of message that the Jewish exiles in Babylon needed to hear. They may have been awed by the king's splendor and by Babylon's greatness, but they are reminded that Babylon is not an eternal kingdom. 
God's kingdom is. And all four of these chapters about Nebuchadnezzar encourage resistance to the claims of Babylon and its greatest king. They encourage loyalty to God most high, for heaven rules. They enable Daniel and his three friends and all the other Jewish exiles in Babylon to seek to flourish in a foreign land while remaining true to the one true God, whether that be under Babylonian rule, or then Persian rule, Greek rule, Roman rule, and beyond. And my title for this series is One King to Rule Them All, with uh, obvious allusions to a certain book and movie. And chapter four is about conflicting claims to sovereignty. Who is the one king to rule them all? There's a claim on earth and a claim in heaven. But really the whole book of Daniel is about this. It's about kings and who really rules. Who is the one true king? The aspiration of any empire builder is to be the one king that rules the world. Nebuchadnezzar encapsulated that in the history of Babylon. Now we've had four chapters about Nebuchadnezzar. But he is by no means the only claimant to earth's throne. Chapter five will be about Belshazzar. Chapter six will be about Darius. Chapter seven will be about the theme of kingship. So Nebuchadnezzar has been followed by many, many other rulers who have attempted to set up great empires. But all human rulers must learn that God is sovereign, that he has appointed over his kingdom the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Nebuchadnezzar gloried in his greatness before God humbled him. But God is appointed as the true king of kings and lord of lords, one who humbled himself to begin with. As we heard in our scripture reading from Philippians 2 about Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man like us, human. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, therefore, because he took this downward path of self-humbling, of emptying himself, of becoming like us, entering into human history, taking the form of a servant, therefore, God has exalted him to the highest place as King of kings and Lord of lords. See, the lion has conquered by being the slain lamb. And we now give our allegiance to a king who gave himself for his people. And in the book of Revelation, which uh, the ladies will be studying starting in the beginning of September, uh, just a month away, the center of the book, we hear this cry that goes up, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And there are two implications of that. Firstly, Babylon must fall. Babylon the great, a phrase that occurs five times in Revelation. 
Babylon the Great must fall, the world city, the city of the world's kings. And the heavenly city must descend to earth so that God and his people can dwell together in that city as heaven and earth are joined. In Paradise Lost, John Milton has Satan say, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. But when we surrender our attempts to be king of the castle, when we bow down and give our allegiance to Christ, the king of kings, and serve him, we find our true freedom. For the, he is the one whom to serve is pre, perfect freedom, and under his rule all flourish. So the path to flourishing is not to climb on top of a mound and say, I'm the king of the castle, but to bend the knee to the heavenly sovereign for heaven rules. He is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So may God grant us the grace to bow down and come into his kingdom and to flourish. He knows our weakness. Jesus on earth cared for the weak, the poor, the outcasts, the vulnerable, and is able still to empathize and sympathize with those who feel that way. So if that's how you're feeling, we have one who knows our weakness and understands and can lift us up. For of such is his kingdom made. Amen. Well, today being the first Sunday of the month, uh, we take communion together. It seems very fitting to do this again um, in light of what we just uh, talked about, about who is the true king. And we have as king one who gave himself for us, his people. And the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered his disciples together for a Passover meal in which they told the stories. The stories of the exodus from Egypt, the stories of the defeat of another king who had set himself up as world ruler, even the Pharaoh of Egypt. And God brought his people out into freedom, which they celebrated and remembered every year at Passover. And among the elements that was used at the Passover meal was the unleavened bread that represented their hasty departure from Egypt and four cups of wine that represented the redemption from Egypt. But Jesus transformed the story as he shared that meal with his disciples. He reshaped it around himself and he transformed the meaning of the two elements. That the bread now became representative of his body given for his disciples, given for his people. And the blood became, the cup became the blood, his own blood, poured out for his people, poured out for the forgiveness of sins, poured out to seal a new covenant. You see, Jesus gave himself for his people so that we might then flourish. So the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed and he gathered his disciples together and he took the bread 
and he broke it. And he gave thanks. So let us pray. Loving God and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this meal to which we come now. We thank you for your great grace shown to us in the Lord Jesus Christ who humbled himself and entered into our story, became like us, became obedient, acted as a servant, and went all the way to the cross uh, in obedience to your commission to him. We thank you for his faithfulness, uh, for his love, and we thank you that you have vindicated his life and death in resurrection and have exalted him on high, given him the name above every name and installed him as King of kings and Lord of lords. Father, we thank you for the life that you give us through his death and resurrection. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins. We thank you for this bread that represents his body given for us, this cup that represents his blood poured out for us. As we eat and we drink in faith, we pray that you would nourish us. And we pray that your spirit would move among us and uh, empower us to live life in the manner of Christ's kingdom. That the way we treat one another would be a mirror of how Jesus acted and what Jesus did. We thank you for his great example. We thank you for his sacrifice. We thank you for him entering into our story to redeem us and bring us into his kingdom. Father, we uh, renew our allegiance to, uh, to, you, to the Lord Jesus now and acclaim him as our king. And we bow our knee as his servants and worship and adore. Father, you are a great God and we thank you for our great savior, our Lord and our king. Amen. So I invite you to take out the... Uh, Red component. The body of the Lord Jesus Christ given for us. Let us all eat together and be thankful. Now look up. The body of our Lord Jesus poured out for us for the forgiveness of sins, for a new covenant. Let's drink together and be thankful. And as we eat and we drink, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, until he returns the returning king and brings heaven to earth and the kingdom be fully realized. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Amen. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And now may the blessing of this God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be upon us all 
now and evermore. Amen.